Alrighty. If you've got your Bibles, open to Revelation chapter 1. We'll get started. Father, I just thank you for a new day to be in your Word. And I thank you for this amazing revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to know you more and help us to learn more about you. And as we study this particular book, it comes with the promise of a blessing. And it's because it focuses our attention back onto you, especially as we go through hard times. Lord, we know you're in control and you've got everything planned out. The future is in your hands. So we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you remember from last week? Those who are here, the outline of the book is Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Very good. Yep. And he says, write the things which you see, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So the things which you have seen is chapter 1. It's the vision of Jesus. The things which are is the church age. John, when he wrote this, was in the church age, as we are now. We're still in the church age. And that's chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which will take place after this is chapters 4 and on. Now, chapters 4 and on are after the church has gone up in the rapture. So in chapters 4 and 5... The church is raptured and taken to heaven for a seven-year like honeymoon period with the Lord. And then 6 through 19 is the seven-year tribulation period. At the end of verse 19, Jesus comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 20 is the millennial reign, the thousand-year millennial reign. And then chapters 21 and 22 is eternity, new heavens and new earth. So... What I thought we'd do is just read up to verse 8. So we covered verses 1 to 6 last week, and we're just going to do two verses today. So let's just read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that's what we got up to last week. This week, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. In verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So last week we talked about the fact that the book of Revelation has hundreds of references to the Old Testament, some to the New, but many to the Old. And we're going to see and start to match up Old Testament scripture with the book of Revelation as we go through. So there's a few in both of these verses. So, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. What's he talking about? Second coming, yep. Yeah, second coming is a big topic. That's why we're taking a bit of time to have a look at it. So we'll start by asking the question, when is the second coming of Christ? When does Jesus physically return to the earth? Yeah, so at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and the event where he comes back at, and that's in progress when he comes back, is the Battle of Armageddon. And all the nations of the world come against the Jews to annihilate Israel. And it looks terrible, it looks hopeless, it looks bleak. Jerusalem is almost completely conquered. And then Jesus comes back as the conquering king. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 19. So let's go there and just read the account of the second coming. 
So it's Revelation chapter 19, and then I'm going to read from verses 11 to verse 16, and then from verse 19 to 21. Okay. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And on to verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So a couple of things there, the sword coming out of his mouth. I don't think he literally has a sword coming out of his mouth. If you look at the other scriptures, the sword is the word of God. So like he created by speaking, he's going to destroy by speaking too. But what I love about this is in verse 14, who are the armies in heaven? The saints, it's us. How do we know they're not angels? Yep, they're clothed in white linen. Yeah. So that represents, again, referring to other scriptures, the righteousness of Christ. So the church comes back with Christ riding white horses. So, application for us today if you don't know how to ride a horse yet, you better start getting riding lessons. <laughs> so, we like Jesus will be riding white horses as we come back to earth with him at his second coming. So, can you picture this? Just try and picture this. Every believer from the church age coming back with Christ at his second coming, possibly billions of people, suspended between heaven and earth, riding these awesome white steeds, just floating in the air, weightless. So it's us and our glorified bodies riding these amazing heavenly horses. Now that's going to be quite an experience, but it's still nothing compared to what we're going to witness as Jesus defeats his enemies. So, glory to God for what's going to happen there. Now, what about the rapture? Some people might have the question that the rapture is the same thing as the second coming. Well, we're not going to go into it too much now, because it's actually subject for chapter 4. That's when the, the rapture happens in the book of Revelation, I believe. So, the rapture is different to the second coming. Why? Two reasons I'm going to give you today. The rapture happens before the seven-year tribulation period starts. The church goes up to meet Jesus in the air, to be with him in heaven, protected from the wrath of God, poured out on the earth during the seven-year tribulation period. Now, we don't have time to read it this morning, but the reference for that, where it explains all that, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, and you've got to read right through to chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, right through to chapter 5, verse 11, and it talks about we're not appointed to wrath, God's sparing us from the wrath to come. The rapture happens first. We're spared from the wrath which is poured out during the tribulation period. So, in contrast, at the second coming, the church comes back down with Jesus to witness and share his victory over the Antichrist and his armies at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So, simply put, at the rapture, the church meets Jesus in the air and they go up to heaven before the seven-year tribulation period starts as opposed to the second coming, when we come back down to the earth at the end of the tribulation. So there's other differences, but that's for now. So let's have a closer look at what John has communicated to us in verse 7. Behold, he is coming. Behold means to look. Yep. So this is the command to look, to check it out. And God wants us to be always looking for his second coming. So 
last week we were looking at John praising Jesus for his work of salvation, where he washed us in his blood, etc. But now he's moving on to describing his return. So verse 7 says, He's coming with clouds. When Jesus comes, he will be surrounded by clouds. And this is going to be true, literally, because when Jesus left the earth, remember that? In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, he is taken up into a cloud, and God said that he would return in the same way. That Jesus would come on or with the clouds was also predicted by Daniel, way back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. The clouds of heaven. Now, these could be physical clouds, I believe they are, but it could also be a reference to the church going back. You know, the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews. The cloud can be like the glory of God as well in the temple. You can make what you want of that. And Jesus also said this in Matthew 26, 64. It says, Jesus replied, you have said it, talking to the high priest. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then it says in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 1, And every eye will see him. So this is something else that we need to know about the second coming. When Jesus comes, it won't be a secret coming. Now, a lot of people, a lot of cults, they'll say, Oh yeah, Jesus has come and he's, he's done something, but he hasn't really come back to earth yet. Look, every eye will see him. Everyone will know. At his first coming, Jesus was actually somewhat obscure. During his earthly ministry, he didn't make the front page news on the Rome Daily, you know. So, but when Jesus comes again, every eye will see him. The whole world will know. And Jesus said this about himself in Matthew 24, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now it starts getting quite interesting. It says in verse 7, Even they who pierced him. Now who's that referring to? Well, if you look at the verse, it could be or the Romans, it could be the Jews. But the Bible gives us more information. When Jesus comes, it's going to be a particularly meaningful and painful revelation for the Jewish people. It wasn't just the Jews who crucified Jesus, but we know from Zechariah 12.10 that it's talking about the Jews. This is what it says. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So when Jesus reveals himself to his own people, the Jews, it will not be in anger because it says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's the Jews, the spirit of grace and supplication. So they're going to be repenting, repented. So by the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the Jewish nation will have turned to Jesus, trusting him as their Messiah. And a couple of references there are Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine and Romans eleven twenty-five to 26. So that was Matthew 3. 23:39 and Romans 11:25 and 26 we don't have time to read them now and when the Jewish nation see Jesus and his pierced hands feet and side it will be a painful reminder of their previous rejection of him back in his first coming so I'll just read that verse again Zechariah 12:10 and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now there's another similar prophecy, which is Zechariah 13.6. And it says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms or hands? Then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So when the Jews see Jesus, they will ask, where did you get those wounds? And Jesus will answer, in the house of my friends. And so no wonder they're going to be mourning. They're going, oh no, what have I done? So yes, they are saved. Yes, they are repenting. But 
you know, when we do the wrong thing, we should mourn over our sin. Now, something that I find incredible and I find quite humbling is that Jesus will bear the marks of his suffering on our behalf for eternity. So yes, he's got a glorified body. But even in his glorified body, we will still see the nail prints in his hands and his feet and probably the print in his side. So why would Jesus still bear the marks of his suffering on our behalf for eternity if he's got a glorified body? I mean, I don't believe that we're going to, you know, if I've got a scar, that's not going to continue on my glorified body. Why did Jesus' scars continue? Yeah, that's right. So, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and from the Amplified Version says, But God shows and clearly proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for us. So, the crucifixion, the cross, Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, is the proof of his love. And that's why we went through last week, Jesus loved us. So, looking at the present day circumstances is sometimes hard to know if God loves us or not. But we can be sure that Jesus loves us by looking back to the cross. That's where our confidence comes from. So, the proof of God's love toward me will be before me, before my very eyes, for all eternity. Every time I see my beautiful Saviour, I will see the scars and be reminded of how much He loves me. So, what this means is that in heaven, our relationship with God will never be stagnant or boring. Yeah, I know Jesus, He's revealed Himself to me. No. We are going to spend eternity learning about the most glorious topic imaginable, which is how much God loves us. It's about relationship. Our relationship will be continuously growing deeper and stronger as we understand more about just how much it cost him to save me or to save us. And I've got a verse there. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Again, it's referring to the cross, but it talks about why. He did this that he might clearly demonstrate through the ages to come for eternity the immeasurable, limitless, surpassing riches of his free grace, his unmerited favor, his kindness and goodness of heart toward us in Christ Jesus. So I read that again. He did this that he might clearly demonstrate through the ages to come for eternity the immeasurable, limitless, surpassing riches of his free grace, his unmerited favor, in his kindness and goodness of heart toward us in Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose of being in heaven for eternity? To enjoy ourselves? To pat lions without being bitten? No, it's not. It's to grow more in our relationship with Jesus. What's our purpose in life now? To grow in our relationship with Jesus. Okay, nothing changes. So why is it going to take eternity to learn about God's grace and his love? What does it say about God's grace and love? It's unlimited. Yeah, it's infinite. Yeah, so it's going to take an infinite amount of time to understand and fully comprehend an infinite love. So for those who are married, think about how exciting it was, and still should be, (laughs) to fall in love with your spouse and how all the other things that you used to think were important just seemed not to matter anymore. You know, all the things you do when you're single, you fill your time up and you get married, suddenly, ah, it's not important. Your friends, ah, don't have any friends. (laughs) Just got my spouse, well, my my fiancé, you know. That's what it's like for me. My friends got married. I was booted out of their social circles for a while. So for all of us as Christians, think about how awesome it is now as we mature in our Christian walk and enjoy and appreciate our relationship with God more and more. Life becomes more and more fulfilling and beautiful regardless of our circumstances. So this will be true for all eternity as well. We will all share the beautiful experience of continually falling in love with Jesus deeper and deeper forever. So for me now, thinking about how God loves me, how much he loves me, can be overwhelming. So I can't imagine what it's going to be like when I see him face to face. And I see him as he sees me, and I know him as he knows me. And that's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We're going to come back to this concept when we get to chapters 4 and 5, because that's the church in heaven. And we see 
Jesus as the lamb that was slain. That's a bit of an introduction to that thought. All right. Now, the next part in verse 7 in Revelation chapter 1. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Again, this is not just an out-of-the-blue statement. Jesus said this in Matthew 24 verse 30. It says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So, I've already covered the reaction of the Jews to seeing Jesus still bearing in his glorified body the scars of his crucifixion. Now we're going to look at the reaction of the rest of the world. So, there's two groups of people. The surviving tribulation saints, those who had managed to evade the Antichrist and not get their heads chopped off for that last three and a half year period, they'll see Jesus come back and they'll be like us. Wow, I'm coming to a greater understanding of what Jesus has done for me. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. There's godly sorrow. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. So there is a time to be sorry. There is a time to mourn. But for the unbelievers, it's a different story. This is, yeah, this is quite sad. God had given many clear warnings to all people living on earth for the first three and a half years. And specifically, not to follow the Antichrist and take his mark. So firstly, you have the two witnesses that had been prophesying and doing miracles and causing plagues and drought for the first three and a half years. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. The next thing that God did to try and get people's attention is he separated 144,000 witnesses from the 12 tribes of Israel. And they went out and they became witnesses, evangelists, going all over the world, and they were preaching for three and a half years, or maybe longer, I'm not sure. And they received God's protection, and at the second part of the chapter where it's mentioned there, Revelation 7, it talks about the countless number of people who came to Christ. So they lead many people to Christ. And finally, in Revelation 14, 6 to 11, it tells us about three angels who go about flying around warning people. So this is how serious God is about getting the message out there. They have no excuse. The first angel is proclaiming the everlasting gospel. The second angel is about the commercial system. The third angel is what we're going to focus in on. It's Revelation 14, 9 to 11. And it says, Then a third angel followed them, shouting, or with a loud voice. I'd like to hear an angel talk with a loud voice. I don't think anyone would be able to not hear it. Anyone who worships the beast and his statue, or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand, must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And continuing on, verse 11, The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. So God has made this choice crystal clear. You either put your trust in the true God, or you put your trust in and worship the fake God, the counterfeit God, the Antichrist. So the unbelievers had put all their eggs in Satan's basket, so to speak, and now they understand at the second coming that their decision was a bad one. Jesus has returned, the Antichrist is defeated and thrown into the lake of fire, and the surviving unbelievers know it's just a matter of time before they too will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever because they took his mark and worshipped this false Messiah. So just put yourself into their shoes for a bit. I'm heading towards an application here. Put yourself into their shoes. Just a few hours earlier, you've got these millions of people, you know, armed to the teeth with all these high-tech weapons and stuff like that. Probably nuclear weapons and, you know, and think, who's going to take us on? And then (laughs) Jesus comes back and he speaks. And millions of soldiers die and they split open. It's going to be a gruesome thing. It talks about the birds coming to eat the corpses and stuff like that. And suddenly they realize that the end has come. They've made their bed and now they have to lie in it. There's no chance to change their mind. Their fate is sealed. And I imagine it would be like being stuck in a car on a railway line. It's dark and then 
you realize, oh, there's a light coming and you hear the sound of a freight train and you know it's just a matter of time before you're gone. Yeah. So the blood drains from your face as you prepare to die. That's how I imagine the feeling of these people and Jesus comes back. They're mourning, but not in a good sense, in a bad sense. But what about today in the church age? I think this is what it's like for an unbeliever who dies today. They all have their own idea of truth. You know, some people think they're going to go back to dirt and just cease to exist. Some people are going to think we're going to reincarnate it. They all have these weird ideas. But when they wake up on the other side and realize that they have made the wrong choice and they can't change their mind, that's going to be an awful reality that they will have to comprehend. They will experience utter despair and hopelessness and they will be mourning as well for all eternity. So the application for us today, behold, he is coming. There's two groups of people living today, those who are saved and those who are not saved. So if you're not saved, you need to realize that Jesus is coming back. You need to make a decision to repent, to humble yourself, be willing to change your ways and accept the free gift of salvation that God has freely provided for us by Jesus' death on the cross in our place, providing forgiveness of sins. Now, if you are saved, it's our responsibility, it's our purpose in life to prioritize our relationship with Jesus. We need to be in the Word. Because as we're in the Word, we get to know God. As we get to know God, we get to love God. Because you don't get to love someone unless you know them. As you love God more, you obey Him more. As you obey Him more, you abide in Him more. As you abide in Him more, you bear fruit. That's what the Scriptures say. That's a summary of how our life works as a Christian. So it all starts with being in the Word. Now, I'm not saying just start talking to people. You've got to put Christ first. Get your life right with Christ. Get into the Word and then God will give you the power and the boldness and the wisdom that you need to be the ambassadors for Christ. Because that's our job. We don't have angels flying around now. (laughs) We don't have the two witnesses breathing fire. We don't have 144,000 especially sealed witnesses from Israel. We have the church. We are God's ambassadors. And it literally says he is pleading with a lost world to be reconciled to God. And that's in 2 Corinthians 5, 15 to 21. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go and make disciples of all nations. So for those who are writing notes, 2 Corinthians 5, 15 to 21. And Matthew 28, 19 and 20. So that's our goal. That's our mission. Now before we move on, here's another important, I think, important application for us. It's amazing that Jesus still considers the Jews his friends. He goes to his friends. He was in the house of his friends. Okay, Where did you get those wounds? I was in the house of my friends. That's a strong statement. So he still considers the Jews his friends after their rejection of him. It's amazing, but guess what? It's expected. This is exactly what you'd expect God to say. Why? Because God's promise to Abraham was unconditional. All the blessings he gave them were unconditional. It didn't depend on their performance. And God's promise for our salvation, for our justification, where we're declared not guilty, our sanctification, where he's going to change us to come into his likeness, his image, and then a glorification, where he gives us a new body. None of those things have anything to do with our performance. It's something that God will do in us, through us, for us. And this is a part of God's character, which I really love, and it gives me great security. It's Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, do not believe and are untrue to him. He remains true, faithful to his word and his righteous character, for he cannot deny himself. So what God promises, he always keeps. Otherwise, he'd be untrue to himself. So I'm going to read some verses from Ezekiel, which explain and describe how God would never give up on the nation of Israel, but would bless them despite their disobedience. And he's doing it for his name's sake. Not for their reward, but for his name's sake. Because he'd made an unconditional promise to Abraham. So the verses are Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32. It says, Therefore give the people of Israel this message from the Sovereign Lord. I am bringing you back but not because you deserve it. (laughs) 
I am doing it to protect my holy name, on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show you how great my name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. So just pause there. The church isn't really crash hot either. We brought a lot of shame to God's name. We fight amongst each other, especially in ages past. The church is a lot of bad stuff. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the Sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, for I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. Now, that's done. If you look at the news, Israel is back in the land. They are their own nation again. Again, God is saying, I did it, but not because you deserve it. So the next stage, the next part of this passage in Ezekiel is the spiritual renewal of Israel. And this can't happen until the church is gone. So, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you, so that you will follow my decrees, and be careful to obey my regulations. And it continues. And you will live in Israel, the land I gave your ancestors long ago. You will be my people and I will be your God. Again, he's repeating himself here. I will cleanse you of your filthy behavior. I will give you good crops of grain, and I will send no more famines on the land. Has God done that to Israel? They, <laughs> tiny nation, but they're like, I can't remember now, the third largest exporter of fruit and veggies and stuff like that. And we've just been there, and they're growing stuff everywhere. The desert's blooming. But it's going to be fulfilled more and more. I will give you great harvest from your fruit trees and fields, and never again will the surrounding nations be able to scoff at your land for its famines. So when Israel went back into the land, it was just marshes and wilderness, and it was not very inhabitable. Now, there's trees everywhere, there's fruit trees, literally fruit trees everywhere, date palms and all kinds of things. And verse 31, Then you will remember your past sins and despise yourselves for all the detestable things you did. But remember, says the Sovereign Lord, I am not doing this because you deserve it. O my people of Israel, you should be utterly ashamed of all that you have done. So again, it goes back to they will mourn when he comes back. But why I'm doing this, why I'm going through this, is I want to just reflect on how merciful our God is. God is so merciful. If anyone thinks themselves better than the nation of Israel, I think they're fooling themselves. I've been unfaithful to God. I've laid him down many times. But God's promise to save me is unconditional. It has nothing to do with my effort or goodness. God is not saving me because I deserve it. (laughs) I look back at my life and I can see lots of things that I'm not happy about, that I'm ashamed about. I've laid him down. And I mourn over that. But then I'm comforted because of the forgiveness that I've really received. Is this right? Should we mourn over our sin? What do you think? What does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Now the context is mourning over our sin. Okay? The first beatitude is humility, and the second one is mourning. So those who receive the most comfort are those who mourn the most. The more you mourn, the more comfort you receive. And that's based on humbling yourself. The New Testament version of Ezekiel 36, 22-32, where God blesses Israel even though they don't deserve it, is Ephesians 2, 1-11, where God blesses us, the church, even though we don't deserve it. Now there's people who say, it's called the replacement theology, there's people who say that oh, Israel's done so many bad things, God's rejected them from being his people. That cannot be true. I'm going to explain why in a sec, but have a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead, slain by our own shortcomings and trespasses, he made us alive together in fellowship and union with Christ. He gave us the very life of Christ himself, the same new life with which he quickened him. For it is by grace, his favor and mercy, which you did not deserve, that you are saved delivered from judgment, and made partakers of Christ's 
salvation. So in summary, if God rejected the nation of Israel because of their wickedness, then he would have to reject the church as well, if he's going to be consistent. Why? Because they're both saved by grace. Neither Israel nor the church deserve to be saved. We are only saved because God loves us and has chosen us to show mercy. So the whole idea about mourning there, we should mourn over our sin and it should lead to a heart of thankfulness and gratitude. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So who is speaking here? I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. could be Jesus. Most people believe it's Jesus, but it could be the Father as well. These titles are titles of deity. They could reply to Jesus or the Father. In your Bible, if you've got a red letter edition, which means the words of Christ are in red, these words are usually in red. So it doesn't really matter here which way you go, because both titles, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and who is and who was and who is to come, are both used clearly of Jesus in other parts of Revelation. So it doesn't matter. They're used of the Father, or Jehovah, in the Old Testament. We'll get into that later. So they can apply to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all eternal beings. No beginning, no end. Now, what does the Alpha and Omega at the beginning and the end mean? Well, the idea behind these titles for Jesus is that he is before all things and will remain beyond all things. So Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter. Jesus says, I'm the A to Z, the beginning and the end, if you want to use the English alphabet. Now, what does it mean? What's the application here? If Jesus is both the beginning and the end, then he also has authority over everything in between. This means that Jesus has a plan for history. He directs the path of human events towards his design fulfillment, his plan. So our lives are not just blind fate. Instead, Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he directs all of human history and also our individual lives. So he's in control. And then it says the next part there, who is and was and who is to come. So this goes back to Exodus 3.14, where Moses asked God, who do you say I am? I am who I am. So it communicates this idea that Jesus is unchanging. He's eternal. I am that I am, the ever-present one. We have a couple of other scriptures that show the deity of Jesus, that Jesus would literally, Emmanuel, God with us. One of them is Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, literally the days of eternity. So the Messiah, who was to be born in Bethlehem, is from where? From everlasting, literally the days of eternity. So he is uncreated. It's really important we remember that. Jesus is not a created being. Another scripture that you might be familiar with is Hebrews 13.8. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's just another way of saying the same thing. Now, the word almighty, that's an interesting word. Pantocrator, P-A-N-T-O-K-R-A-T-E-R. And it literally means the one who has his hand on everything. So it speaks of the great sovereign control of Jesus over everything, past, present, and future. So the one who has his hand over everything, the one who's controlling everything. Now, this word almighty is used ten times in the New Testament, and nine times, of those 10 times is in the book of Revelation. So what this means is that in the book of Revelation, there's a big emphasis on God's sovereignty. The fact that he has his hand on everything, that he controls everything. And remember, going back to last week, this book was written by John in about 95 AD as the Christians were being persecuted. And they were wondering, what's going on? You know, we're being slaughtered like sheep. This was a comfort to them. God's in control. You're okay. God's got a plan. Trust him. So to finish up, I want to 
try and explain to you how to simply and effectively defend the deity of Jesus using these titles, which are hopefully obviously referred to an, an eternal, uncreated being, who is God. First, I'll just explain a couple of the cults. Mormons believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three separate gods. Now, when you talk to Mormons and you ask them, do you believe Jesus is God? And they'll say yes. And you think, oh, okay, we're the same. But they're not the same. Their definition of these words is completely different. So I just want to do a little bit of this apologetics and just so you can be able to defend your faith. Because in Revelation and the Old Testament, you can use these verses to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the Mormons believe that the Father and Son each have a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. That's a quote. But that the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. According to Joseph Smith, when Adam was formed in the image of God, it was a physical image. God the Father was once a mortal who lived on earth. He died, was resurrected, glorified, and grew into his deified status. And that's why the Mormons say that if you're a good Mormon, when you die, you'll, you'll resurrect and you'll transform into your little God. You'll be just like Jesus and the Father. So God the Father is, a, in their eyes, the literal father of all spirit children, including Jesus and the Holy Ghost. And the Mormons identify Jesus with Yahweh of the Old Testament. So do you, you believe that Jesus is Jehovah? Oh, yeah. But in their eyes, they are created beings. So what about the JWs? JWs claim that Jesus was not divine and the Holy Spirit is an active force and not a person. So JWs believe that Jesus is God's only direct creation. And when it says the firstborn of all creation, they say, yeah, we believe that. We believe that he is literally the firstborn. Now last week we talked about firstborn meaning position, not he's literally the firstborn. Okay, So Jesus is called the firstborn, but not as literally being firstborn, but the most important one, having preeminence. And we went through that last week. And they believe that because he is not eternal, that he's created, that he's not part of the Trinity. So they don't believe in the Trinity. They also believe that before Jesus came to earth, Jesus was Michael the Archangel. Now, why do they believe this? Well, they justify it by saying, in Joshua 5, there's this theophany of Jesus meeting Joshua, and he says, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies, meaning back then, the angels. But they forget that you don't have to be an angel to be the chief of the angels. You can be their creator and still be the chief. You don't have to be an angel to be the chief of the angels. So Michael the archangel is a head angel, and so they associate the head angel with the chief of the angels in Joshua 5, and they get this false doctrine. But remember that you don't have to be an angel to be the chief of the angels. So that's their mistake. So JWs and Mormons use the same words as Christians do, like, for example, Jesus is the Son of God, but they have different meanings. So we need to be clear in our speech with them. Neither believe that Jesus is God, the eternal and uncreated God who created all things and who is one of three persons that make up the one true God, the Trinity. And they, along with all other cults, both believe that Jesus is a created being and therefore not eternal. Okay? So this Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, is referring to someone who has no beginning and no end, someone who's uncreated. Now, one of the most dangerous attacks on the gospel is denying the deity of Jesus. Now, why is this so dangerous? Because Jesus said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So basically, if you deny the deity of Jesus, you're also denying the Father. John 5, 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. How do we honour the Father? As God. The eternally uncreated being, okay? Jesus, we honor with the same honor, with same worship. And it says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So for those who say, yeah, we believe in the Father, 
we put our faith in the Father, but we don't believe that Jesus is God, they can't be saved because they're not honouring the Son as they should be honouring him. It says, He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Now, it's important to understand that the Jewish and Christian understanding of the titles Son of Man and Son of God were divine, especially when used to describe the Messiah. So if you reject Jesus as being God, you're also rejecting the Father. Therefore, if you reject Jesus as being God, you cannot be saved. Okay? So that's why the cults are dangerous, because they get people believing in a false gospel which cannot save them. And in our last study on Ruth, which is a couple of weeks ago now, we went through Jesus being the kinsman redeemer and how an angel could not save us because he's not related to us, he's not our near kinsman, etc. So the only person that can save us is Jesus, who is fully man and fully God. So now we get to go through these proof verses or proof texts to show that Jesus is God. On your sheet there it says verses to show the deity of Jesus Christ using the title first and the last, the beginning and the end, etc. Okay? So what I did in my Bible previously is in the front of the Bible you write Jesus is God and write the first verse, which is Revelation chapter one verse eight. And then next to Revelation chapter one verse eight, you write the next verse, which would be Isaiah forty one verse four. And then next to Isaiah forty one verse four, you write the next verse, which is and so you take someone through your Bible. And you, after you look at the first one, you've already got the next reference waiting for you. And you can even write the question down next to the verse 2 that you want to ask. So we're going to go through it. So you can ask, for example, a Jehovah's Witness, who is speaking in chapter 1, verse 8 of Revelation? says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And they'll say it's Jehovah or God the Father. And then you turn to Isaiah 41, verse 4. And you get him to read that. Who has done such mighty deeds, summoning each new generation from the beginning of time? It is I, the Lord, the first and the last. I alone am he. You ask them, who is this talking about? And they'll say, Jehovah. And then you turn them to Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Ask the Jehovah's Witness, who's that talking about? He'll say, Jehovah. Then you go to Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Who's that talking about? You ask them and they'll say, Jehovah. And you turn into Revelation chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Okay, so the Alpha and Omega they've established as being Jehovah. Well, who they believe is the Father. Okay. Then you might ask, it is done, or other versions, it is finished. Who said that? Jesus on the cross, right? And then it says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Where does it say that? John 7.37. That's another saying that Jesus said. Then you can turn them to Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 and 13 and verse 16. And it says, And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give every man according to his work. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And you ask them, well, who's that talking about? Jehovah, the Father. Okay, well, read on. Please read on. And you get down to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I did this with my stepfather once. And um, he's a Jehovah's Witness. And he's reading along and he's agreeing with me. Yep, that's the Father, that's Jehovah. And he goes, I just, oh, ooh, that's a new paragraph. <laughs> Look, you can prove that Jesus is God. And also, I am coming quickly. Who's coming back? Everyone says that Jesus is coming back. I'm coming quickly. Look, who's coming back? I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm coming back. 
quickly. Now, a great verse to finish up with is Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. Halfway through verse 17, I've started. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And so you ask the question, when did God die? (laughs) So obviously this refers to Jesus' death on the cross. So again, Jesus is the first and the last, the eternal, uncreated God. So as we go through Revelation, it's going to really point out again and again that Jesus is God. He is the first and the last. He is the uncreated one. He is the one who's in control. He's got all things in his hand. He is the Almighty. That's it for today. So the first part, the the main thing there was mourning. Why do we mourn over our sin? Because we've offended God. Okay, And that should grieve us. But then we receive comfort because we receive his forgiveness. This produces humility and a desire to change. And that's what we should be doing. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for the amazing truth that we read about in Revelation. Lord, help us to put you first in every area of our life because it says, Behold, the Lord is coming. He is coming. And Lord, we need to be telling people that you are coming back and that when you come back, You're coming back for judgment. And Father, we just pray that you'll give us that desire to spend time in your word, to grow in our relationship with you and knowledge of you so we can love you more, so we can obey you more, so we can abide in you more, so we can bear more fruit. And one of those fruits is boldness and a love for other people, a desire to help other people, and especially by sharing the gospel. So Lord, Help us to get our relationship right with you. If there's anything that's stopping us from being fully committed to you, fully submitted to you, Lord, I pray that you show us those things in our hearts and then we can get on with our job, our primary job, which is to be witnesses, to make disciples of all nations and to tell people that God wants them to be reconciled to him through the blood of his son. So we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Pray you bless our fellowship now and thank you that we can all gather together today. In Jesus' name, amen.